Have you ever noticed how mainstream media can often fool us to believe things that just aren't true? It happens all the time, doesn't it? Um, and they often work on things. They love to sensationalize different headings uh, to grab our attention. We, we, kinda call, we call it today clickbait. Uh, something pops up there. Maybe we're on social media or we're watching something and it just it grabs our attention. Uh, imagine for a moment the comment just like this. Scientist, scientific evidence shows chocolate cures cancer. Yeah, people are thinking, great. I'm heading out to the cafe straight after for uh, for a chocolate bar, or you know, we're we're reading that article, or we're instantly we are drawn in, and we want to know what's going on in the space of that, and we, we kind of follow it through. Now, while it can sometimes fool people, uh, what happens is that often it just kind of leaves us feeling cynical a little bit about the truth, doesn't it? Because as we follow it through, we realise, well, you know what. That really isn't scientific evidence, and the context really has been a bit twisted. We can't really say that scientific evidence proves that chocolate cures cancer. And so what happens to all of us is that after a while, you know, we, we hear statements or we read stories, we, we, we see something and we think, well, I'm just a little bit more jaded and cynical as to what is real truth today. Now, we hear this, this uh, phrase bandied around, fake news. And so we, we kind of look at media and we look at reports and headlines and, and things that get pushed towards us. And we think, uh, I'm not really sure where the truth sits in all of this. You know, uh, when we come to the story of the book of Acts, we could be, uh, understandably, as we kind of begin to read some of the stories, we, would, we could immediately think, well, now, is it really that true? I mean, after all, what begins, what's told to us in these opening chapters is, is, is remarkably extraordinary. I mean, you think about in Acts chapter 1, uh, the, the believers, these early believers are told to go and wait in the city of Jerusalem for the promised gift of God's Holy Spirit. Nothing too staggering about all of that, but in Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit of God falls upon these believers and the, and the church of Jesus Christ is born in this rather dramatic fashion. Now, if it just stopped there, you think, okay, well, that's pretty incredible. But it continues on from there. In, in, the, in the ensuring chapters, if you read the way through the, the book of Acts, uh, you uh, just have these uh, unbelievable, these extraordinary accounts uh, of the work of God, fueled by the, by the Holy Spirit, by the empowering of the Holy Spirit. This group of early believers begin to live in, in, in what was really quite an amazing way with this great sense of community uh, and, and being pushed in and through their community, this remarkable boldness, this, uh, this sense of unity where all the believers were together as one and this incredible generosity. And uh, you, at that point, you could be thinking, if the book of Acts stopped right there, you, you could easily be tempted to believe, well, that's a great story, but is it really that true? Oh, one of the things I love about the scriptures is that God doesn't just give us the good stories. He actually gives us both the good and bad. In fact, his highlight reels, if I can use that term, so to speak, his highlight reels present both good and bad, warts and all, as he tells his story of truth. And as we come to Acts chapter 5 in this unfolding story, 
we're introduced to us, uh, this story kind of strikes us. In fact, I sat here this morning kind of in our worship time thinking, wow, this is a huge story in the life of the early church. Everything up until this point in time had given us this incredible picture. It was really quite idyllic that the, the early church, everything was picture perfect. Nothing was wrong. But that couldn't have been further from the truth. Because in Acts chapter 5, we're introduced to a, a true story. Uh, in what you might call a, a warts and all story that reveals to us that you can't fool God. If you've got your Bibles, I encourage you, Acts chapter 5, and we're going to look at just the first 11 verses of this story together today. It's a story about a couple called Ananias and Sapphira. Ananias, uh, a Hebrew name which means God is gracious, and Sapphira, an Aramaic name which means beautiful. We're introduced to this couple, and uh, Luke tells the story this way in the first two chapters. He says, Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but he brought the rest and he put it at the apostles' feet. Now let's just pause it there for a moment. What's kind of going on? Well, if you've never heard the story before, uh, then later on today, I'm going to encourage you to go back and read the latter parts of Acts chapter 4. If you've got a Bible there, you might want to just flick there really quickly. But there was this remarkable thing going on in this early community of the church. You see, Luke tells us that there, there was this uh, uh, sense of generosity that kind of just uh, was pervasive. It was just kind of spreading through this early community of believers. In, in fact, uh, we're told that... Uh, a number of people sold things that they had to ensure that uh, all the needs of everybody in this community were being taken care of. Uh, there was no rule about this. There was no guidelines saying this is what you needed to do. There was just this selflessness. There was this sense of uh, giving sacrificially into the life of the early church and money and property. The proceeds of property or land that had been sold was brought to the feet of the apostles. It was put there for them to distribute where they wanted to. And Acts chapter 4 closes with uh, Luke telling us about one particular person. Now, I'm not sure completely why Luke would have singled out this person, but we are told, we're given the name, we're told that Barnabas had some property, he sold it and he brought it and he uh, put, put the proceeds and gave the proceeds to the apostles. Now, how would that be? You had done that and it was your name that was singled out in the scriptures for all of time around your generosity. You'd be feeling pretty chuffed about that, wouldn't you? Well, we don't hear any response from Barnabas, but there's another couple in the life of the church called Ananias and Sapphira who see what happens. They see the way in which uh, 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 they see the response of the people, the apostles uh, towards this gift that Barnabas has brought and, and it is well and truly noted. And so in their mind, they're thinking, well, you know what? Maybe we should do something similar as well too. Maybe we should sell something that we have got and bring some of the proceeds and we'll give it to the apostles for them to deal with as well. That's what's happening here in this story. So we're told that, just recapping, that they sold a piece of property and with his wife's full knowledge, both Ananias and Sapphira, they kept back part of the money. Now, as we think about this story, you know, you think, well, they're exceedingly generous. It's very good. But you know what? There is... Something in this story that ought to catch our attention that reminds us that maybe they weren't as generous as we thought. You see, in this text, there is a word that is used that implies there was something wrong with their gifts. It's the ancient Greek word for kept back that we see in these verses. 
That, that word actually means to embezzle or to misappropriate. And the only other time you see this word used in the New Testament scriptures is in James chapter 2, verse 10, where it's referenced towards stealing. So you, as you think, think about that, you suddenly realize, oh, hang on, there is something wrong with their gifts. What had just happened? Well, Luke is indicating that Ananias and Sapphira had misappropriated the funds from the sale of this piece of property. In other words, they had sold the piece of property and they had only given a portion while implying that they had given sacrificially of everything that they had uh, received to the church. Now, what's the point in all of this? Well, I want to be really clear here and say the point that's being illustrated here is not that we should give everything to the church. That would be a wrong application from this story. You see, it's not wrong to hold something back that we might want and only give a portion of the sale of the proceeds. But it is wrong to hold something back when we've told people that we've given the entire amount. You see, that's a lie. It's blatant deception and it's stealing from God. And so the issue that's being highlighted here by Luke in, in, the, in the life of this early church, what's an all story? It's not an issue of generosity, but rather it's an issue of honesty that, that Luke is highlighting that's happening here amongst the, the life of these early believers. This couple was being dishonest and Peter calls it out. Now, look at what happens in verses 3 and 4. Peter said, Ananias... How is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received from the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You've not lied just to human beings, but to God. Now, I've got to say, I feel really sorry for Ananias here at this point in time. I mean, let's be honest. I mean... Peter calls him up. And what's happening here in this moment? I don't know what you'd be thinking, but this is what I'd be thinking. I'd be thinking, you know what? Oh, they've seen the gifts. This is really good. And so Ananias comes into the presence of Peter expecting to hear praise, but instead he receives this public rebuke. It wasn't what he was expecting to, to receive at all from Peter. You know, Peter says to him, uh, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit? God gives, in this moment, Peter a supernatural insight. The scriptures call it a, a word of knowledge. It's referenced in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 8. And Peter, with this insight that's given to him by God, speaks directly into the situation. Peter wasn't in the back room at the house, kind of realizing what was going on. Oh, okay, they haven't given all the proceeds. I better say something. In this moment, that Ananias brings the funds and lays them at the feet of the apostles, God gives to Peter a, a word of knowledge, a, a supernatural insight into this situation, into this gift that's being offered. And he says to him, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit? Later on that same passage, or verse 4, he says, you've not only just lied to human beings, but you've also lied to God. Now, these are tough words, aren't they? These are harsh words of rebuke. But he has rebuked Ananias for, for coming with a gift and implying that he's given it all. You see, in this instance, uh, 
his sin in this instance was greed in keeping some of the money, but even more so than that, his greatest sin was pride in wanting uh, everyone to consider him so spiritual that he'd given it all when he hadn't. And Peter calls him out on it. Now, in verses 5 and 6, when Ananias heard this, the book of Acts tells us that he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. Now, let me be really clear on this. The scriptures are not saying here that Peter pronounced uh, a, a death sentence over Ananias. You don't see that in any of this, not in the scriptures at all. All Peter does in this moment is the, that he actually confronts Ananias with his sin and we're told that Ananias just fell down dead. And while we're not told this, I'm confident that Peter was just as shocked in this moment as probably all of us would have been or anybody that was in that church at that moment uh, as they watched what was unfolding. I mean, can you imagine if that was to happen amongst us today? In, in this same space, you could say, well, it wouldn't be the worst way to die. I mean, imagine uh, me preaching my sermon and saying amen and then <laughs> fell over and died right there and then. I mean, couldn't think of a better way of going to heaven, could you? But that wasn't the point of this story. You see, this was judgment that was falling upon Ananias in this particular instance. See, it wasn't a peaceful departure. See, the shock of being exposed was so much for Ananias that he fell down dead. If there had been a, a coroner there in that moment who was doing an autopsy of, of Ananias' body, uh, maybe across his death certificate it might mark the words, heart attack. See, he was so shocked at having been held to account for his sin that it killed him. In that moment, Ananias didn't yawn uh, when he was being challenged about his sin. He didn't debate with Peter saying, well, come on, Peter. You know what? It's the, it's the pot calling the kettle black here. I mean, you've got a few issues in your, or you've had a few issues in your life as well, too. He just simply fell to the ground and he breathed his last. And you could say that in one sense, it was God's doing. Satan was doing his best to stop the growth of the church and God was not about to allow sin, scandal and satanic influence to actually infiltrate or to corrupt his church. Well, that was the story for Ananias. What about Sapphira? Well, let's pick up what happens to her beginning in verse 7. Luke says that about three hours later, his wife came in not knowing what had happened. She's oblivious. And Peter asked her a similar question. He said, tell me, is this the price that you and Ananias got for the lands? She's given an opportunity right here. How does she respond? She says, yes, that's the price. And Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. And Sapphira too, she just drop down debts. You know, what's it say about to us about Sapphira? Well, she was obviously a willing participant to the deception. Not only to the deception, but to the cover-up. She had a moment right there and then when Peter asked her and challenged her and said, is this the same amount? If she was feeling any sense of remorse in this moment or thinking, you know what, I'm not so sure this was the smartest thing for, for us to have done as a couple, not knowing what had happened to Ananias, she had a moment right there to say, you know what, actually, it's not the full amounts. The story might have been a really different story. 
But she was not only a participant in the sin of deception, but she, uh, she, she, she covered it up as well too. They colluded together. But you could say that they sinned separately. And God judges her. Luke says at that moment she fell down at his feet and died. And then the young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. In one sense, fittingly, the same judgment that came upon, uh, that came upon uh, Sapphira, as came upon her husband, that, sorry, that same judgment that came upon Ananias came upon Sapphira as well too. And since they shared in the same sin, it was fitting that they would share the same reaction to being found out. It was shock, horror, and death. And in this story of Ananias and Sapphira, it just kind of finishes with Luke telling us that this great fear seized the church. Well, I think it would seize us as well too, if we were in that space. No one likes to feel afraid. No one likes this feeling of fear. It makes us uncomfortable. So we don't go looking for fearful situations. In fact, what we tend to do is that we run away from fear. It is not how we like to fear. But I want to suggest in this instance that fear actually was a friend to the church. Because the church suddenly realized that God would not allow them to flirt with sin without uh, having to deal with the coming consequences for, for dabbling with sin. And did the event stop the church from growing? Not at all. In fact, if you continue to keep reading into the next few verses, you, you discover and you see for yourself that the church continued to grow prolifically. It was like it had this purifying effect in the life of the church. God was dealing with sin, and as people realized the, 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 the importance of keeping short accounts and, and walking in holiness before a holy God, God continued to just do uh, extraordinary things in the life of this early church. More and more people kept coming to faith in Jesus. It had the opposite effect. So as we think about this story, what do we do with this? What do we do? What do we make of this true story in our, you know, for our lives? You know, it's easy to maybe read this story and uh, to, to look at the, the judgment upon Ananias and Sapphira and uh, think, well, gee, it's a little bit extreme and harsh, isn't it? I mean, imagine if God was judging the same way today. And we might even be tempted to think, well, is it really that big a deal? It was just a little fib. I mean, Ananias was just being slightly dishonest. You know, and instead of saying, instead of saying, oh, the words just kind of, you know, uh, apart or, you know, most, just like I gave most of the money. But instead of saying that, he said all. You know, is it that big a deal? What's the big deal? Well, I think this true story, you see, remember, God just paints it all out there. He puts it all out there. This, this true story reveals to us that, well, it reminds us that the sin of dishonesty and deceitfulness within the body of Christ is a really big deal to God. That's what it's saying to us. So what's it say to us? Outside of that, you know, how do we apply that to our lives? You know, if, if we want to live with a whatever it takes faith, how do we begin to apply that truth into our lives today? 
I think there are a couple of things that jump out of me. You might find some other things as you're reading this, uh, this story as you apply it, but two big things that stood out to me this week that I just thought I've got to share it with the church. And the first one is this. See, this story reminds me that we must rid ourselves of all kinds of hypocrisy. You know, if we're going to be the people of God and we're going to endeavor to live with this whatever-it-takes faith, then, and then we've got to ensure that we rid ourselves of all kinds of hypocrisy. And, you know, let's be honest with ourselves today as we think about this story, as we think about what it means. You see, this sin of Ananias and Sapphira, the sin of trying to be something that they really weren't, I think it's still being seen today in the life of, of believers. And, and I think about that for myself as well too. You know, what do I mean? See, I think there is a real temptation today to want to give the impression uh, of being something that we really aren't. And, and I think we do that in all kinds of ways. Now, I, I don't know whether this is a problem for uh, other people that don't live in the West, but our whole, our infatuation today with image is huge. You know, that's why you pick up your phone, you look at Facebook and uh, Instagram, and it's full of highlight reels of just kind of this picture-perfect world. No couples ever seem to be fighting. Kids all look perfect. Homes look immaculate. Holidays, just incredible. And we get this picture of just everything being perfect when if we're really honest, we know that if we peel back the layers of our lives that they don't really show the full picture. You know, I'll try, I'll try and give you some examples to, to try and land this a little bit so it makes sense for us. But if, but if we're all honest in our own individual lives, I think it's a struggle for us. Now, I don't have any particular word of knowledge about this comment, okay, as I make this. But you know what? There's every chance in a room this with so many people or people watching online today that at some point either today or across the course of the week, you might have been driving with your spouse. And uh, in the course of you driving somewhere, you found yourself in a really kind of heated, let's not say uh, conflict, but an argument or a debate together. Now, I'm sure that's never happened to anybody here in this room, has it? Oh, I don't expect to see a show of hands here in this room. You know, there's a reason why Julie and I drive separate cars to church on a Sunday. So we never have an argument. But you know, there is this amazing thing that seems to happen over couples, if I can use that quite broadly speaking, because you're laughing with me. So obviously there's some truth in all of this, that you can be driving to church to a worship service on a Sunday and you're having a very heated debate in the car about a particular matter. You, you pull up in the car park and you walk in through the doors and it's like this beautiful Christian veil just falls over everything that's just been happening in the car. And someone says, how are you doing today? Oh, great. Oh, simply fantastic. Isn't it wonderful to be together in the house of the Lord together? And you look at your spouse and you smile and you just kind of keep on walking in together. Now, I'm not saying that we should be looking to bring our arguments and our fights into the life of the church. But what I am saying this morning that in just that, there is this sense of fakeness, of this sense of not being real, of us being kind of uh, slightly dishonest with those that are around us. 
I suppose what I'm trying to illustrate the importance today is, you know, it was an extreme example for Ananias and Sapphira. I mean, they lied to God. They lied to the Holy Spirit. They lied to the people that are around them. But you know what? You know, dishonesty is dishonesty, isn't it? Uh, not being real is not being real. I suppose the point, part of the point of me saying is that, you know, in the body of Christ, we want to be real. That if we can't step in through those doors on a Sunday after having a little bit of a, an argument with a, with a spouse and a good friend says to us, hey, how are you doing today? And if our temptation is to want to present that everything is fine, then something is wrong. In that moment, surely we should be able to say to a friend, you know what, it's actually not so good today. This is what's just happened. And, 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 and if your friend is good enough, they say, you know what, hey, why don't we just pray about that together? See, there's something genuine and real about that that I actually think uh, uh, it's what God, you know, that actually delights the heart of God. Not the fighting, but the sense of, you know, being honest and real. It's bringing the real you before a real God and being real in that situation. You know, we can do it in relationships. This whole thing of image, I think, sometimes is wrapped up in us trying to be something that we know we're not, and we can do it in the area of spirituality. You know, we can do it in terms of, you know, presenting this facade around, you know, we're, we're people of the scriptures and we're people of prayer. And we can throw a verse out there and look all kind, you know, super spiritual, but, you know, if people peel back the layers, you know, it's just a facade. Well, I've got another example here, and I'm probably going to uh, regret saying this because my pastoral colleagues might push back into me on a Monday morning. But you know what? I actually think we can also be dishonest when it comes to uh, endeavoring to show how effective we really are when it comes to serving the Lord. And I see this kind of amongst pastors and some of my pastoral friends and colleagues. It would never happen here in this church, okay? Let me just put that right so you're not thinking about any other. There's no word of knowledge about any of the pastors here in the church here. But what tends to happen when we're in our pastoral circles, we call it rounding up. People will say, oh, how's things going, Dave? Oh, fantastic. Oh, well, tell us a little bit about it. Oh, we're seeing lots of people come to love. What's lots of people mean? You know, we tend to exaggerate sometimes our own spiritual effectiveness because it communicates something about what we want people to see in us. It's all being driven by our image. See, in those moments, we're being dishonest. You see, uh, if we think about some of the teaching of this and, and this importance of ridding ourselves of all kinds of hypocrisy. See, I think this is where the story needs to hit home to us. And it has to hit home to me as well, too, as I give this out there. You see, if we're willing to be brutally honest, I think at times we are more focused on the image of spirituality rather than the reality of our spirituality. And we can become so infatuated with making sure that we spin a really good image out there, just like Ananias and Sapphira did, but just in a different way. That we end up convincing ourselves that we don't need to really be that good a Christian. It's what's really important is that we convince others that we're actually much better than we really are or that we've got it more together than, than, than we really have. And that's where it came undone for Ananias and Sapphira. See, no one asked them, no one even expected them to give any of the proceeds of this land to the church. 
See, there was no rule existing within the early church that was prescribing that this is what every, new, every believer had to do. There was no rule guiding that. It was just something that people were feeling prompted to do uh, uh, out, of the, out of the course of their own hearts. And in this situation, Ananias would have been well within his rights to have taken the entire amount and kept it all for himself. He could have in his own mind sat down with Sapphira and said, you know what, uh, you know, we've made this money. We weren't quite expecting to make this money. But look, why don't we give 20% to the church and we'll keep the other 80% to ourselves? Wouldn't have been a problem. Or they could have said, you know what, why don't we give 50% and uh, I'll take the other 50% and love, I'm going to take you on a trip to Rome. It's a good thing to do and so I'm free to do that with that, that money and we'll just tell the church that, hey, we've given half the proceeds. Or they could have given the entire amount to their kids. You see, it wasn't an issue of generosity. It was an issue of honesty. And it's really clear in this story, and I feel challenged by this, is that God, what it says that God detests any form of hypocrisy and deception within our lives. And so if we're going to live with a whatever it takes faith, if we're going to take seriously what it means to, to follow Jesus with our lives, then I'm saying to all of us, and myself included, that we've got to be prepared to root out any trace of untruthfulness and strive to live with a Holy Spirit-inspired integrity in everything that we do in our lives. That's the first application. But here's the second thing. You know, as I think about this story, it reminds me that we must guard our hearts from the influences of Satan. We must rid ourselves of hypocrisy, but we must guard our hearts from the influence of Satan. You know, it's also clear that, uh, you know, we we must do that lest we fall into the same trap that Ananias and Sapphira did. Now, let me be clear on this. Uh, Satan didn't make Ananias and Sapphira make the choice that they did. That's really clear. He just put the opportunity in front of them. He planted the seeds into their mind. Oh, I could see how it happened. You know, it's like they sold this property. They actually wanted to give. They were going to give it all. And then possibly something happened like, oh, my gosh, we didn't realize we we're going to get this kind of money for what we've just done. Okay, well, why don't we give that? And let's tell them we've given that, but let's keep this for ourselves. You, know, you can see how it happens. In that moment, they could have thought, oh, that's just wrong. What are we doing? We can't, we can't do that. We've got to be honest. We've got to give the whole thing. That's what we said we were going to do. See, that's how extramarital affairs happen. I'm yet to meet a couple who have started out thinking, I'm going to have an affair. It's not usually the way those things work. What happens is that some kind of temptation comes to one of the, the two individuals and, and instead of resisting that temptation right there and then, they, they kind of take those one or two or three next steps and before they know it, they've given in to the cravings of their, own des- of their own desires. But you know, it doesn't just happen in sex. It happens in all kinds of things, whether it's uh, around our ambition to succeed in our jobs, whether it's around you know, presenting half-truths around who we are, uh, you know, it's, it's the show that we put on that we're, we're better than we really aren't. 
And so when I, you know, we talk about we need to guard our hearts. Why do I know we need to guard our hearts? Because I look at this story and I look at some of the other examples of the way in which uh, the enemy loves to, to get in and infiltrate. You see it in the life of Peter, don't you? In fact, it was Jesus who said to Peter just before his denial, uh, he, said, he said these words. He said, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. You see, you can't tell me today that our enemy is not endeavoring to actually get in, in and through the church, in and through the lives of believers. And it was Satan that tempted both Ananias and Sapphira to lie to the Holy Spirit, to God and to the church. And they were willing participants to the temptation. Now, we don't know in this moment if it, had been, if it was all Ananias' fight, fault. You know, he, might have, you know, he, he might have been the one that kind of constructed all of this together and then said to Sapphira, you know, let's do this. She might have been the one that tempted it. We, we don't know. But here's the point. If it, was all the, it was all the, if it was all the planning of Ananias, if he thought of it and then he pressured Sapphira to go along, he was wrong to do so and so, so was she. And James 4, 7 says to us, well, we've got to be alert to the work of the enemy. And James 4, 7 says, humble yourselves therefore before God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. So if you and I are going to live with a whatever it takes faith, we're going to take seriously what it looks like to, to follow Jesus with a whatever it takes faith, then we too must put ourselves under God's. We humble ourselves before God. We must put ourselves under God and we must then put ourselves over the enemy, over Satan, who is clearly the source and inspirer of all kinds of evil. So as we think about these two applications, I, I, I wonder what might be floating around in your mind today as you're thinking about that and for your life. You know, what's the Holy Spirit saying to you as you think about this story and what it looks like to live with a whatever it takes faith? See, maybe for some of us, it's really easy today that we can see somewhere in all of that that some form of hypocrisy has just begun to creep into our own lives as well too. That we too can be easily caught up in this, this image trap of wanting to be something that we aren't or to look better than we really are and so we can put on a really, really good show. Now, is that the challenge for some of us today here in this room or, or maybe watching online? You see, as I think about this, what that challenge, this story challenges me to think about you know, bringing the, the, real God, the, the real me, bringing, bringing who I really am and being completely honest with, that, with the real God. He understands that we struggle. He understands that there are temptations that sit out there that, that, are, that are attracting us. See, it's not a, 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 this story is not about generosity. It's, a, it's about honesty. And maybe, maybe, just maybe for some of us today, it's, it's about dealing with some of that stuff in our lives that we see there because we realize that it's beginning to rob us of spiritual vitality. Or maybe for others of us, as we think about this story, it's not so much about hypocrisy. But maybe it's realizing that our life is actually quite vulnerable today to, to some specific uh, temptations in our lives. And you'll know what that is today. 
Can I encourage you today? You don't want to flirt around the edge of sin. You don't want to go there. And if nothing else today, it's, it's about actually finding a trusted friend, a confidant and saying, you know what? This is an area of my life that I struggle in. And I need you to hold me accountable. Do you know what? I do that as a pastor. I've got some good friends in my life that I am very transparent with. And I'll say, hey, would you pray for me in that area? Would you ask me the hard questions? I don't want you to ask me the questions, but I'm giving you permission to ask me questions about that because I actually want to be held accountable. And maybe for some of us, that's something that we need to do today. See, this story, it's not a story about generosity. It's a story about honesty. And it reminds us that what God really wants in his church, he wants a pure church. He's looking for an environment that is holy and pure. He wanted it then, he still wants it today. He wants it in our own individual lives and he will not put up with sin in in the body of Christ, with, with with the sin of deception and dishonesty. He just won't put up with that. And so he'll do whatever it takes to keep his church pure. You know, uh, 170 years after this church was kind of planted or after our very first worship service, here we are still today. But you know, we don't want to presume upon the goodness and the grace of God. Just kind of going along, doing our own things, thinking, well, you know, at some point in time, do you know what? Well, maybe I'll kind of get my life right. Or, uh, you know, I'll do it. I'll take care of that in a week or a month or a year. You know what? Don't ever presume upon the grace of God in your life. Because God will do whatever it takes to keep his church pure. I don't know what it is for you today that maybe you're feeling challenged about. But as our team comes back and as we kind of finish our service with uh, another song of worship together today. This is an opportunity for us in this moment to, 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 to quietly just, maybe it's to sit and to reflect and to engage just in that moment in a way that You are processing what the Spirit of God is saying to you. Would you join me as I pray? Father, this is a hard story. It's a confronting story to to read. We we like the other stories where the Spirit of, where where your Holy Spirit fell and impacted the church in a dramatic way. The the gospel started to go out. we love hearing about how this early church was unified and incredibly generous. But we feel incredibly confronted by this story. This warts and all story that had serious implications for uh, one couple in the life of the church. And as we process that in our own lives, it challenges us as well too. Father, the story raises all kinds of questions for us. We, we might think, well, God, do you still, why don't you judge in the same way that you did back then today? And maybe in this moment, all I can say before you as a holy God is that we are so grateful and gracious that you don't. So we don't want to presume upon your grace today. Lord, would you help us today here in this room and online as we think about your word and how it hits our lives today? 
Lord, if there's dishonesty in our life and the way in which maybe we're dealing with other people around us, maybe it's within our work or our business, maybe it's in our family, maybe it's even just how we present ourselves to other people. We know we're not really being, we're not bringing the real you or the real us into those situations. God, forgive us. Save us from uh, a world, kind of a, a culture that says you've got to just have it all together. We want to be real. Help us to live in a real way before you as a real God. We thank you today for your grace and for your mercy. Thank you for what you're doing in our lives right now. Holy Spirit, would you continue to move and to challenge us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.